there are real winners that get significant clarity out of this decision. Now, Rebecca's right. It's just one district court opinion. It's not necessarily the law of the land, but it is a federal district judge saying the industry is right and the SEC is wrong. And that is a huge deal because so many people think whatever the SEC says, well, that must be the law. They're the experts. They're the regulators. So whatever they say, that's how it is. And that is not true. This episode is brought to you by Chainalysis, the leading blockchain data platform that powers investigation, compliance, and risk management tools used by both businesses and government agencies around the globe. You'll hear more about Chainalysis later in the show. Welcome back, everyone, for the um, yet another great regulatory pod. We have, of course, as always, Rebecca and Jake. Welcome back. Uh, really excited for this pod. So much has happened in the regulatory sphere, which I think is just a primary topic in crypto. Lawyers are the the stars of crypto now. Um, so anyways. I'm going to uh, enjoy it until we get regulatory clarity and we get like relegated to the back again. <laughs> well, I think you have a couple of years ahead of you. Well, so enjoy the fame and the, and, and the, uh, and the, um, you know, the attention. Congrats also, Rebecca, for the new role at, at uh, Polygon. Thank you. Uh, you and Mark have always uh, made a great team and it's great to see you both um, now together as so, um, guys, so I, why don't we just start with Ripple? I mean, a lot has happened on that front. It's been over four years plus in the making. So maybe we can start, uh, Rebecca or Jake, whoever wants to start, but let's just start there. Um, sure. I'll start and just give like an overview of the case. And maybe Jake wants to take, you know, what we can take away from it um, from that. I have my trusty copy of the case with me. Um, but uh, this is a district court case in the Southern District of New York. And the posture of the case uh, or the opinion was really there were what are called cross motions for summary judgment. So the SEC, who is the plaintiff in this case, saying that Ripple had engaged in unauthorized sales of securities um, and thus violated the securities laws, said, we've developed the factual record. We took all the depositions. We got all their documents. Um, and based on the facts that we've developed alone, uh, we can get uh, a ruling in our favor as a matter of law that Ripple, Ripple violated all the securities laws. And Ripple conversely said, no, the factual record actually shows that we did it. Um, what you don't see in this opinion is that, although they did drop a footnote to say this, it sounds like the SEC put in 900 exhibits to support their case. And having been a clerk in federal court twice, I can tell you when one side puts in 900, the other side is putting in somewhere close to that, if not something equal. So the court really had a big task in front of them to parse through all the facts as they've been developed and decide as a matter of law uh, whether they could actually make a decision here. Interestingly, and when you have a record that big, sometimes you really can't do it and a court will just punt and say like, sorry, there are lots of issues of fact, go to trial. So I do think that the court undertook this huge factual review and came out where they granted the SEC's motion in part and denied it in part and then granted Ripple's motion in part and denied it in part is a really big thing to take away just from all the work that went into it on the court's part and then obviously on the part of the litigants to, def to do the record, uh, develop the record. Um, but let's go through what it says really quickly. One, there were three basic types of sales uh, at issue. One were the institutional sales. So it's like really what we think of is like when you sell tokens to VCs or, you know, engage in that kind of uh um, sale of tokens. The second was what they called programmatic sales, where Ripple sold XRP on centralized exchanges with blind bid ask transactions. 
So Ripple didn't know who was buying the XRP and the people who bought the XRP and these programmatic sales didn't know they were buying it from Ripple. Uh, and then there were these other distributions, one of which was distributing XRP as a form of payment. And then the other was um, distributing XRP with the Spring Initiative. I think it said Spring. It starts with an X, but I assume they mean Spring Initiative. Um, and I think of that as like what we call a grants program sort of colloquially. So uh, the interesting thing is um, the court found that Ripple engaged in sales of unregistered securities with respect to the institutional sales. I don't think anybody is surprised by that. Um, it's sort of very consistent with what Kick and Telegram did um, also in the Southern District of New York. So that's important. On the programmatic sales, however, where it was just retail users on a centralized exchange, the court found that these weren't sales of unregistered securities, um, some of which is because they didn't know they were buying from Ripple uh, themselves. And so Ripple wasn't making these promises in a sort of contractual arrangement. And then the last thing is the judge found that giving tokens to your employees did not constitute sales of unregistered securities because she said that there was no actual consideration, no money changing hands. Uh, and same with the spring initiative, these grants programs also did not constitute sales of unregistered securities. Uh, the thing she did punt on though, was that um, two of the executives at Ripple, Brad Garlinghouse and Chris Larson had sold um, XRP uh, and in their individual capacities and were those sales of unregistered securities. So that's sort of open and up for trial and itself is a, you know, it's a big issue. And the court just put out, um, you know, yesterday, so that Monday, uh, an order that said, think about whether you guys want to settle. That's not specific to this case. That happens all the time uh, after summary judgment where the, the facts and the law has sort of shaken out and you have maybe a few things left for trial. And the question is like, can you just come to a resolution on your own? So that's the high level. The last thing I'll say is this is one district court in one district in the United States, right? It's not the Supreme Court. It's not even the Second Circuit or one of these intermediate courts. It's one court. So it's the same as the court in Kick and the same in Telegram, same in Library, which was in a totally different district. Um, so we've seen a lot of these cases come through district courts. They're not binding precedent, even within their own district. The Kick and Telegram and um, Ripple courts maybe look to each other for guidance, but it's not binding on them. Only this intermediate or the Supreme Court is binding. So I think that's an important takeaway. But Jake, what should we take away from this case? Well, well Jake, I want to go to you because I think you put out a great tweet. Uh, which I retweeted, said some folks read financial journalists are still confused about the Ripple decision. The key holding is that, quote unquote, investment contract analysis must focus on transactions, not assets. Tokens are not securities. Transactions in tokens can be depending on facts and circumstances. So I thought that was a great tweet, but I'll let you comment on on, on this. Well, yeah, thanks for thanks for flagging that. I guess let me um, let me first give some context for how big a deal this is, and then we can talk about that specific point. This is a huge deal. This is the biggest thing that I think has happened in crypto law since I got involved in this space in 2017. I do not think that we should underrate how important this is. Everyone has been waiting for the court to resolve this case for a long time. No one knew how it was going to come out. I don't think anyone expected, even in our sort of wildest dreams about how good this could look, that it would look as good as this. And I think the, the key is 
there are real winners that get significant clarity out of this decision. Now, Rebecca's right. It's just one district court opinion. It's not necessarily the law of the land, but it is a federal district judge saying the industry is right and the SEC is wrong. And that is a huge deal because so many people think whatever the SEC says, well, that must be the law. They're the experts. They're the regulators. So whatever they say, that's how it is. And that is not true. And having a federal district court in a case of this magnitude come out and say, the SEC's theory of the law at its foundation is incorrect. It, is, it seriously is, is the biggest deal of anything that I, that I could have imagined seeing. I think the, the key is that tweet that you just mentioned, which is the SEC has this perspective, which is tokens embody investment contracts. We refer to this as the embodiment theory. So what they will say is, if a token is initially sold as an investment contract, the token itself represents the security. And no matter how many times it trades, no matter who has it, no matter how many years have gone by, the token itself is still a security. And we, the SEC, have jurisdiction over it. And the court says, that is not true. The investment contract analysis, which is this, uh, this element in the securities definition in federal law um, that is one of the types of regulated securities, the court says the investment contract analysis does not focus on the asset. It focuses on the transaction. The big winner of that decision is the exchanges who are also being targeted by the SEC, right? This is the essential issue in the Coinbase case. The SEC says all these tokens, right, these 13 tokens that we are listing, they embody investment contracts. Thus, they are securities. Thus, when Coinbase creates a secondary market listing those tokens for trading, Coinbase is violating federal law by acting as an unregistered securities exchange. I don't see any way to read this decision and think the SEC wins that case. So I think the big winners here are Coinbase and the other exchanges being targeted by the SEC. By virtue of that, the rest of the entire industry, big winner in this decision. Jake's Jake's take is so much more exciting than mine. Can we rewind and let me start over? But in all seriousness, the SEC also had a rough time in the Southern District of New York in the Coinbase case last week, where they came, they showed up for, I think, their initial conference or some uh, argument. Um, and there is a great exchange between the judge in that case and uh, the SEC, where she said, do you really expect me to believe that when you approved, it's what we've all been saying in the industry, that when you approved their S1, um, that you weren't looking at the legality, or at least didn't give them a heads up, like, hey, this may not last, and we may take it away. And it's a, it seems like a very long exchange. And she basically says, I want you to know, like, you're not going to really be able to clear this up for me, because I do think it was incumbent upon you. And if you think about it logically, like, okay, if they're approving an S1 for a telecom company, they can at least say, like, as a matter of law, you're engaged in telecom, what you're doing is legal. Whether the technicalities of it are right, we couldn't weigh in on because that's, that's covered by the FTC. This, however, is something that the SEC says they are the ones to determine the legality or illegality of it. So letting the S1 go through... Um, I do think is going to be something, one that everyone said back in the day when the SEC, back in the day, a month ago or whatever, when the SEC first brought the case at Coinbase, people said there was going to be a lot of skepticism um, from the judge on this. And it obviously came true. And I will tell you from people that I've even spoken to in TradFi, also just don't even believe this thing in terms of they approved the S1 and now they're coming back and saying it's illegal. And I think the other point on that, that at least I've heard from a lot of people in TradFi is 
their job is to protect investors and they just wiped out a lot of um, sort of investor value by bringing this case. Um, and then to go back to one thing that I think, I think there are two parts um, to what Jake had said. And it, it, P.S. Jake's TLDR was, we are so back. Um, but, <laughs> but I think this is the thing that really is the, like one of the key takeaways in the case where, she, where the judge writes XRP as a digital token is not in and of itself a contract transaction or scheme that embodies the Howery requirements of an investment contract. And so I do think that people are going to have to start going transaction by transaction. Uh, and, and that's what the industry has been arguing for for a long time. Uh, Ripple said that there are these implicit uh, sort of elements that you have to look at before you get to the investment contract analysis, one of which was, is there an actual contract? And the judge said, I'm not going to look at all three of those, but she drops this interesting note at the end of the section saying, but I will look if there's a contract. She sort of says that in like an oblique way. So I do think, um, you, you know, where it says investment contract, you have to take the language of the statute on its face, that there really needs to be an implied or uh, an express contract. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, government agencies, regulators, and policymakers all utilize Chainalysis's data and services to make sense of what's happening on the blockchain. Chainalysis demystifies crypto by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Square and Barclays and BNY Mellon. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the entire crypto ecosystem. Gain greater visibility and insight with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com forward slash empire. If you are looking into compliance, and you need blockchain compliance, there is no better place. It is chainalysis.com forward slash empire. What are the, I want to go to, because my thinking was when I read that, the investment contracting is, what are the repercussions and implications for other token issuers and the industry and the way it's financed itself? Of course, you know, you have typically the these, you know, early stage financing rounds where you have a token warrant and then there are subsequent maybe fundraising venture rounds in equity. Um, and then you have a token issuance event. Usually that's kind of the sequence for most of these projects. So what what is now the, for all the kind of founders out there that have been, or just investors out there, like what is now the sequence if you were to interpret what has happened with Ripple and say, okay, this is kind of a, the blueprint for projects going forward. What would that look like? Well, okay. Yeah, let me let me uh, throw my take at you and then tell me why I'm wrong about this. Um, I think that this actually strongly validates what has developed into the industry standard at this point, right? And the industry standard is, just as you described, there's sort of two different transactions that occur. One transaction is with investors in the development company that is creating a blockchain-based product or you know launching a new blockchain, and then giving tokens or the right to tokens to the investors who are investing in that project. Now, 
Now, when you look at that transaction and you apply the investment contract analysis to that transaction, I think you're going to find that there is an investment contract, right? There are promises made between an entrepreneur and an investor that the entrepreneur will use the investor's capital to build something of value and they're promising profit if they succeed in doing that, right? That is an investment contract. But that investment contract is not embodied by the tokens, which can at some point in the future, provided there is compliance with the securities laws, be resold on a secondary market by that initial investor without that secondary transaction also being viewed as an investment contract, because you won't have those same indicia of a security when you have that second transaction. You then also have the distribution of tokens by the development company to the public. And this is the other piece of this, the decision that I think is a, a huge victory for the industry, which relates to airdrops and the interpretation of the first prong of the Howey test, which is the requirement of an investment of money. And the SEC for a very long time has basically said, the Howey test is meaningless. Anything that has a, a price on a secondary market is a security. You can have an investment of money, even if there is no investment and no money changes hands, right? What they'll say is, if you're the recipient of a token and you are going to contribute some sort of intangible effort that will bring some kind of value to this scheme as a whole, that is an investment of money, right? The SEC has said even giving an email address over to the entrepreneur who's issuing the asset, that email address is something of value and that is money under, under the case law. This decision, I think, fully rejects that theory. What the court says is you only have an investment of money if you have a transfer of definable and tangible consideration from the investor to the entrepreneur. Now, that doesn't actually mean money like cash or you know some other national currency. It could be some other definable and tangible thing of value. But if you receive an airdrop and you're not actually giving some asset to the creator and distributor of that token, you are not going to have an investment of money under this decision. And what that means is those airdrops that we've been seeing in the market, in my opinion, and of course, this is not intended as legal advice, my usual disclaimer, but my mm -hmm. best read of the decision is those distributions will not be viewed as securities because there is not an investment of money. So to me, major validation of, of how the industry has designed these types of distributions in the last few years. Rebecca, before I go to you, on, on this point of airdrops, could um, the SEC or some other regulatory agency say, wait a minute here, you've expended energy, capital, opportunity cost to farm the airdrop? Because usually the criteria for airdrop is, hey, you've been engaged in the network in some capacity. You've expended time, uh, foregone some sort of other opportunity cost or some nature that you're being compensated and rewarded. But I think about DeFi like yield farming as a primary example. In that case, could could you see the ar that argument having any merit in in court? Um, no? I mean, it could have some legs. The the Howie case on investment of money has developed in such a way where certain courts do say can be anything of value whatsoever. I will say what's interesting is that um, in this case, especially with respect to the distributions to employees, the Ripple judge really hewed very close to the language to say there was no money that changed hands. And I will say we have seen other, excuse me, other courts definitely say it can be anything of value. So I think that's important. Got it. Um, in, in terms of the appeal, do you, of course, Rebecca, you mentioned this is one court 
if it has still obviously a big repercussion, but do you, do you think one, the SEC will contest this? Um, and as it relates to the Ripple case, I mean, are we calling it a win? Is is this being going to be challenged? Some people say yes, other people say no. Um, I'm just kind of curious where you see, like, I'm really cautious to call this like a victory and say kumbaya because then things can get reversed. But like, uh, Jake, you seem really on the on the cap of like this is definitive. Rebecca, I'm curious where you kind of stand and um, yeah. Sure. So as I sort of alluded to, the what can happen right now only is theoretically the case goes to trial on the remaining issues or it settles on the remaining issues. After summary judgment, if you don't uh, resolve every single issue, there's no final determination on every issue in the case. So in theory, the neither the SEC nor Ripple can actually go up an appeal now. Uh, the only way they could really do it is by doing something called an interlocutory appeal, so an appeal in the midst of the case. That's a very high bar to reach. You usually have to get the district court judge to certify that there is an issue here so important that it merits staying the trial uh, and goes up to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit also has to agree to take it on. That seems like a leap to do right now with these remaining issues against the individuals out there. Um, I think it's a toss-up on whether the SEC actually appeals. I've heard people say, like, Chair Gensler is definitely going to have to do this to, you know, make sure he vindicates his... I I can't read all of Jake's uh, facial expressions right now, but I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I've heard people go both ways on it. I do have to say... I. I think there is, um, I don't know if I'm fully on the we are so back train yet, but like there is a turning tide. And I will say just even from a lot of my regulatory meetings or other types of meetings that I've been going to, um, it's not, you know, hugely that way on the Hill with everybody, but even within some agencies and definitely within TradFi, there is a big turn right now. And so I think some of it may be, based on where the political pressure is at the time. But I'm really interested to hear what Jake has to say about whether there will be an appeal or not. I mean, look, everything that Rebecca says, as always, is accurate. I just think (laughs) that we've been so beaten and bruised by the last couple of years and the string of losses and the pain and suffering that we've had dealing with the SEC that we're all just afraid to celebrate what is obviously a giant win. So look, could there be an appeal? Yes, But I think we have to listen to the SEC and take them at their word. They made a statement about this decision. It was very unusual. They said they were pleased with the decision. And I don't know why they said that. I think it's probably just them trying to spin and it being so laughable that we all know it's ridiculous. But I don't see them coming out with a press statement saying they're pleased and then doing an interlocutory appeal. Now, will they appeal when the case is over? Sure. But that's months, maybe more likely years away, depending on how Ripple decides to handle, uh, you know, pretrial motions practice before we actually get through a trial. By the time we get to an appeal, it's another months or years before there's a decision. That decision comes from a random group of three Second Circuit judges. We have no idea what they will say. At that point, is Gary Gensler even still with us? I just feel like there's so much uncertainty about all of these years down the road, what might happen on an appeal that it's not even worth talking about right now. What we have is a decision from a federal district court that says the law is what the industry has been saying the law is for years. And let's be glad about that. And let's keep pushing the ball forward in other cases to make sure that that becomes the law of the land. That's my view. So I think that's right. Um, 
in terms of like, we have a turning tide of sentiment. I do. I honestly think the judge's statements in the Coinbase case um, at the oral argument last week were very compelling, which is, you know, we've been really, Jake didn't use the word, but like we've been gaslit for so long about what this industry is, what it's doing, how it actually works um, with so much skepticism. First, it came from TradFi. Now they all love us and are, you know, singing our song or getting there, at least on the Bitcoin train for now. Um, and then obviously with regulators coming off of a lot of what they heard behind the scenes. And so I think that we do need to keep pushing. I don't actually think anybody should take their foot off the gas right now because we do have momentum our way. Um, not to be a Debbie Downer, but apparently uh, Chair Gensler was at the National Press Institute or the National Press Club this week. And even though he was pleased about the institutional sales, he actually said he was disappointed uh, with the decision on the um, program, program, programmatic sales. So they are splitting hairs on that. Mm -hmm. But I think Jake's right. Like there's, there's a lot to be seen. And I do think that this has cast a lot of doubt when you get to the policy side of things as well, which is really important to talk about during this discussion as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we can go there actually, because, you know, you guys are very involved. There's a lot of stuff happening in Congress. You have the stablecoin kind of act, you have uh, the Coinbase case. So I'm curious, how much is the Ripple decision trickling down to other places in DC, but also in some of the kind of other uh, kind of tracks that we have, right? We have the the couple of bills um, and acts out there uh, that are being discussed. So I'm curious, what are the implications here? What's the sentiment out there? Um, I was on the Hill and started meetings about 20 minutes after the Ripple decision dropped. Um, so that was a very eventful day and sort of got to give a first preview and read out to everybody and say, like, this changes things uh, materially. It does validate a lot of what the industry has been doing, a lot of which is reflected in the McHenry Thompson bill. Um, and just to say, like, we're not going to be able to leave it up to the courts as people have wanted to do. A lot of, um, you know, Congress people have wanted to do to say, well, Gensler and the courts will work it out. I just don't think that that we can leave it to that anymore. And a couple of the points I made uh, were, you know, this is now one court. We have a patchwork. We're going to have lots of different decisions. And you're not going to be able to reconcile them all because they're all on different facts. And don't you want to have one fabric that everybody can look at rather than trying to piece together takeaways from district court decisions for the next three to five years while we're waiting for appeals and maybe going up to the Supreme Court? Um, so I think that's a really important takeaway, that the courts aren't going to solve all of this for us because they aren't all coming out the same way. And there are a number of different issues. And the other thing I said is um, sort of what you guys alluded to in your last podcast, which is, well, how is the industry going to evolve based on what is said in this uh, decision? And a lot of the things I said on the Hill, too, were people are going to take things away. The industry is evolving so fast. There's going to be something new. Do you want the SEC to have to think about what they're going to do and what this means from a how the industry evolves standpoint three to five years from now and have to bring a, no, a new swath of cases? Is that how we really want to be using resources? Or do we want to actually put in legislation that says once mm -hmm. and for all how the industry is going to operate? Do you think this changes the SEC's... I mean, do you think internally the SEC thinks twice before doing more of this uh, reg, uh, you know, enforcement through kind of regulation or regulation through enforcement? 
Yes and no. I think um, yes, because this is embarrassing for them. Like their statements that they are pleased aside, I think, you know, the, the the polished press statement says they're pleased. And then, you know, Chair Gensler says the truth when he's put on the spot in a, in a live event and says he's not very happy about this. And that matters a lot to Chair Gensler, right? As, as we've discussed before, a lot of the SEC strategy is in large part about the appearance of Chair Gensler as the cop on the beat who's taking care of all of us non-compliant crypto companies who just refuse to follow the law, even though it's so clear. And this really does damage to that to that impression. And I don't think that the SEC will want to expose itself to a lot of more decisions like that. I would expect that they will pull back a little bit on the litigation risk that they decide to take. That said, I don't think they're going to drop any of the cases that they've brought, right? They're not going to give up on the Coinbase or Binance or Bittrex cases or any of the others that they've brought. Um, and so they are also going to have to double down. And I think what that leads them to do is to say exactly what Rebecca said in making the SEC's argument for them, which I think we should probably not do too much, which is this is just one decision from one district court judge. We think this judge got it wrong. We think that another judge in a different district or even another judge down the hall in the same district will see it our way. And this, you know, this will just be a sort of a momentary blip. And I think that's probably most likely what we will see from them. On the, I just want to go back to the Ripple case quickly, which is when I read it, Jake, I think you, when I saw your tweet, I was like, okay, I, I get it. Cause I read it. Look at the token itself is not a security, but the nature by which you sell it can have implications. So of course the programmatic element seems to be okay, but not if you're doing these OTC deals with institutions, what does that actually mean in practice for someone like Ripple? Like, do you get fined? Because uh, thinking about other issuers, of course, that have done these OT like institutional sales and programmatic sales, like it feels to me like there are a number of other projects that have done both. And so one, what is it, where do you see this going for Ripple and perhaps other issuers that have engaged in both type of sales? I think maybe two thoughts on this. One is, um, as I said before, in a way it validates the transactions that we've seen that have become pretty common, where that initial transaction uses an explicit exemption from the registration requirement under the securities laws, right? If you do a Regulation D private placement, meaning you only sell to accredited investors and you apply the proper lockups and, and you know all of what's required under the law, you don't have to worry about whether your transaction was or was not a securities transaction because you know that the law doesn't apply. And I think, you know, this sort of confirms that that's what will need to happen. One of the problems for Ripple, I, I, and correct me, Rebecca, if I've got this wrong, but I think they could not use the Regulation D exemption because they didn't have the right lockups in place, right? Otherwise, those institutional sales also would not have been a problem. And so I think it sort of just reinforces that we've learned a lot in recent years and, yeah. and people were doing it differently at the time that Ripple did those sales. I mean, go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah, what I'll say is it doesn't mean the securities laws don't apply to the sales to the institutional investors. It means you don't have to file a registration statement to say we sold securities and here are all the disclosures and things like that, mm -hmm. because you're selling to sophisticated, as the Ripple decision says, you're selling to sophisticated investors. So we're assuming you don't need all the disclosures that are required by the securities laws when you sell in a, in a wider uh, venue. I think what happens though here. Um, and I don't actually know what happened on the exemption. I think they didn't have the right lockups in place. They certainly didn't 
file. I mean, you don't have to file a form for a Reg D, but they didn't. Um, so very unclear what happened with the exemption. And you could probably go back and figure it out from the record, but I will tell you it's very vast, so I haven't. But there will be a huge fine here um on the on the issue of the institutional sales um very 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 large well in excess of probably any attorney's fees they've paid uh so so over like um, 200 million <laughs> probably yeah. i mean yeah, yeah. i do think it may be in the hundreds of millions yeah, is, yeah. which is probably why the magistrate judge said hey do you guys want to try to figure out some so, yeah. form of settlement but i would still be surprised if either of these parties wants to settle and so maybe for our audience, let me put a hypothetical case here. So, so you're a, a – uh, to, to be fair, one of the things to, important to mention here is that Ripple is sort of this – predates this new standard, right? Because a lot of the projects like post-2017, 2018 ICO boom, there's a sort of new framework of a token warrant and most teams have kind of gone this path. But like Ripple obviously was before that and so – it didn't have maybe the lockups in place. Now, of course, Rebecca, you know, in my time of Parify, like we, we and Jake as well, like a lot of lawyers and projects have used the template now, but post twenty eighteen. But even those projects, let, let's hypothetically say you you went through the first couple of private rounds, you had of a safe and a warrant, and then you at some point issue a token. The investors that were in the private rounds have lockups, typically over a year. They at some point get that token invested. Then you have a huge airdrop to the community, some of which might have a lockup, other that does not. And then the team also vests over time. So you know, investors and team are, are vesting. Uh, the community can get the airdrop. It could be immediately kind of up for sale, and they you know they can do whatever. The, it is that they want, and then they can trade it on these exchanges or a DeFi protocol. But say at some point that team, once you have a token, wants to raise more money. And a lot of projects find themselves in that position, whether because it's a bear market or because at some point they get approached by a fund and they say, hey, listen, we'd like to buy tokens and we're, we can be subject to some lockups, typically, right? What is sometimes deemed as like an OTC, like a like a pipe, if you will. And in public markets, you have a pipe, right? You have typically a fund that says goes to a public company and says, hey, we want to buy a bunch of stock. Let's structure it. Is that problematic? Because a lot of teams have done this, right? Like some fund would approach a project and say, hey, we want to buy a bunch of tokens. Um, can we do that? Is that okay or is that not okay? Or is there some nuance here that if it has a lockup and proper structure, then it can be okay? So I'll say two things. One, Jake and I are not your lawyers, so this is not legal advice. Right, so yeah, well, of course. Just disclaiming all of those things. Um, but um, now I'm back in a fully legal role. I always have to say that. But um, but uh, And folks, by, by the way, th this would have cost you a couple thousand bucks. Th this, <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll continue. Um, but um, it depends. It depends where you are in the life cycle. I know, sorry, but it does depend. This is a real, it depends. If you have a more definitive answer, then you're a better lawyer than I am. But like, it depends on where you are in the life cycle of things. Like if you sell tokens for a protocol that you have no involvement with or um, that, you know, is fully running autonomously and you're just selling out of your treasury, it just, it may be um, based on the circumstances that go around all of this. And one I think the other thing is like, what do you promise in the transaction in these securities? 
Um, and I think that's the really important thing. And you may promise different things based on the life cycle of where whatever you're developing is. The one thing I want to say, though, that I haven't heard a lot of people say publicly yet, this decision does not mean no token can ever be a security, by the way. Most of the tokens as we know and see them today probably are not, given the way that they... Um, you know, they're structured, but you can structure a token to have features that are very security like. And so those you really need to still keep thinking about whether the way like if the token has, you know, a revenue stream or something like that associated with it, that may be a security depending on how it's set up. So you do have to think about it. And I just I don't I, I know I'm the Debbie Downer on this podcast and Jake is the we're so back person. I can live with that. But I do want to make sure we're like taking the nuance away from this from this mm-hmm. too. But I'm very happy and, and emboldened by this uh this decision as well. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be so bullish if I didn't know that Rebecca would uh would keep us at least a little bit grounded in this conversation. <laughs> I guess maybe just two quick thoughts on that. One is really important flag that that Rebecca made. We're not saying no tokens are ever securities. What we're saying is under the Ripple decision, tokens do not embody investment contracts under which they are sold. That's all we're saying. You could issue a token and have it be a stock and that's going to be a security or it can be a note and that's going to be a security. And there are ways that you can trip those things without meaning to. So people still need to pay a lot of attention to those issues. Hmm. And then I guess to, to address your hypothetical, I, I think Rebecca's totally right. It depends. But I think that the Ripple decision helps us understand what the circumstances are where that transaction, that later sale of tokens by the development company will be viewed as an investment contract, right? You look at the transaction. And what that means is you're looking to see, is the entrepreneur raising money from the investor on the promise that it will use that money to make profit for the investor. And you can imagine a circumstance where even though the token's been live for a number of years and there's an active secondary market and a functional network underlying it, that the development company still says to the later purchaser, we need more money so that we can keep building this network out. And if you give us that money, we're going to use it in X, Y, and Z ways. And that's going to bring a lot more value to the network and to the token that we're selling you. That's very likely a security transaction. You could also imagine a situation where the development company is basically no longer functional and isn't doing any more work. It's kind of like a holding company for tokens. The tokens really look like they're just commodities as if the company was holding gold or silver or some other type of asset that it's not making any promises about. And if it's sold those tokens under those circumstances where there are no promises about future efforts that will yield profit for the investor, well, maybe that's not a securities transaction. But the whole point is you look at the transaction transaction, not at the tokens. Yeah, just to, to round out this discussion, obviously the, the latter description looks and feels a lot like the Ethereum Foundation, for instance, where they have a bunch of ETH and they're actually going through an exchange. Like everyone looks at whenever they send uh, um, tokens uh, ETH to an exchange, it, it also marks local tops, uh, surprisingly. Um, but uh, yeah, they go through and they sell it at Coinbase or Kraken or whatever. And so you know, of course, they're engaged in some capacity as as a as a node in the system, as a develop. You know, they're part of the network, but they don't control it. And they, they you know, um, the other perhaps more interesting one that we've seen is this kind of that is is left of up to governance. And this touches on a, an important thing that maybe or, or in the Ripple case, it's it's not relevant. But this idea of decentralization and governance, for instance, if uh, you make a proposal on chain. For instance, uh, a protocol like Lido, you know, you've had, or even Sushi and other protocols have had 
a fund or uh, some sort of party that says, hey, we want to buy tokens from Treasury. This is the proposal. This is who we are. And it's then left uh, for token holders to vote on that proposal. And you could say, hey, well, it's sort of like a is it sufficiently decentralized? Who's voting? Sometimes the team has a lot of say in that, but other times it doesn't. And it's just the, the token holders. Where is that in your mind in terms of kind of, is that a contract per se? Is that a, is that, yeah, I'm just kind of curious what you think that would constitute um, based on this. That's a tough legal hypo. Um, I think we should give that to Well, we can all pass, the, but but you no, know, th- I mean, this happens a lot because tokens want to, yeah. like protocols want to decentralize and then like, you know, at some point yeah, people want to buy but, the token. But you know what wasn't in the Ripple decision? This concept of sufficient decentralization. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think that's really, really, that's a really important thing to think about. Um, it really focused in on like, the actual conduct, the actual transactions at the mm-hmm. time, like it was, it hewed pretty closely to the factual record and did not pull in. And, and interestingly, right, the Hinman emails were released based under this case and all the and mm-hmm. all the discussions, and that didn't even factor into anything the, the judge said. Yeah, not at all. Um, so this concept of decentralization, you know, we have to think about like where it fits, um, not just in the regulatory or policy landscape, but just where it even fits from an ethos perspective, I think that's the most important thing to focus on. But as far as a, you know, a proposal to a DAO, I mean, it goes to the same thing. Like, will the DAO keep, you know, doing things like we're only going to buy the tokens if DAO, you do X, Y, and Z, and it's going to be a slow release over time. And there are milestones to me, you know, with the DAO and things like that, or they just want to buy straight from the DAO because they don't want to buy off an OTC desk. And so you have to sort of consider the proposal in real time. Um, I do think, It'll be very challenging to enforce anything, as we even saw from Uki, right? Um, yeah, this is a BZX kind of case, which is there's the corporate veal that doesn't exist, and everyone's kind of well, yeah. right? This idea, like, oh, we won again. You know, the CFTC brought a case against Uki Dow, and even if they won, you know, on a default judgment, like, what's been the win, right? Yeah. I mean, people were very up in arms about it at the time, but I don't think even in a, even in and of itself that case made an impact to say like, oh, we're all giving up DAOs now or things like that because it's very hard to enforce against a DAO and especially a very distributed one. Yeah, I um, I do think this is one of the limitations of the Ripple decision, right? It doesn't touch this issue at all. And it doesn't really help clarify a bunch of, of issues that we still just don't understand, right? So first of all, like we said, the decision stands for the view that the token doesn't embody an investment contract, but it still could, in theory, represent an interest in an entity that will be viewed by a court as an unincorporated association that is liable for operating some protocol as a business, right? So this doesn't solve any of those kinds of issues, like the, the Ukidao issues. I, I think this is also where we have to look to legislation, right? This is a great opinion, but it will take us another 20 years of opinions like this to clarify all of the various issues that we need to get clarified. So you don't have to pay a million dollars to a law firm to write you a 30-page memo that ends with, we don't know, best of luck to you, right? And this is where, you know, this is a really exciting time because, Next week, uh, there's going to be a markup in the House Financial Services and House Agriculture Committees on the McHenry-Thompson bill, which Rebecca mentioned earlier. This bill is designed 
to solve these problems, right? To resolve all of the regulatory uncertainty by saying, we are going to treat tokens sold under certain circumstances as restricted digital assets, a new term defined by this bill. And we're going to have the SEC regulate those restricted digital assets. And we're going to impose reasonable disclosure requirements for the creators and issuers and affiliated and related persons of those assets. And we're going to have those assets trade on SEC regulated alternative trading systems, but also we are going to set out in law what is required to certify that the asset is now decentralized, or rather that the network underlying the asset is decentralized. And once that certification is done, jurisdiction moves from the SEC over to the CFTC. The asset becomes a digital commodity, no longer a restricted digital asset. It will then trade on a CFTC regulated digital commodity exchange. And now we don't have to play these silly games trying to figure out what courts are going to say about what the investment contract analysis means or when you have a security or not. And this really is the way that ultimately we are going to get clarity. So Rebecca and I are spending a lot of our time. The reason she's on the Mm -hmm. Hill and I'm on the Hill is talking about that bill. And I do think the Ripple decision reinforces for Congress why we need legislation, because these issues are not going to get resolved unless Congress speaks about how it wants this industry to be regulated. Yeah, and one of the sponsors of the bill, um, Glenn Thompson, uh, who's from Pennsylvania and on the House Agriculture Committee, came out about the Ripple decision and said, this is what we've been saying all Mm -hmm. along, that we do not have clarity. And exactly what Jake said, these court cases alone are going to give it to us, and that's why Congress needs to act. I will tell you, um, while it's not a one-to-one comparison, I do think that the McHenry Thompson bill looks to codify much of what we've been talking about in terms of how the industry works today. And that is what Ripple does too. And so when I was on the Hill last week, even though I'd only been able to do a very cursory read on the Ripple decision before I started talking to, uh, you know, staffers and things like that, I said like the the McHenry Thompson bill lines up with what Ripple is saying. Um, And that's really, that's an important takeaway. And as I said, it's not a one-to-one comparison and there's not words like programmatic sales and stuff like this, but this Mm -hmm. idea that when you sell them to an investor with a bunch of promises before there is a, you know, live token, live network, live protocol, whatever, and then uh, it has through its life cycle, the ability to sort of, the token comes out of it. It's like a butterfly. It comes out of the cocoon of the investment contract Mm -hmm. and goes on its own just as a commodity uh, is sort of what the McHenry Thompson bill sets things up to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's so much left that is unresolved in the ripple. Like even uh, is something a Uniswap, a programmatic sale not touched on, right. To my knowledge. I mean, DeFi is sort of, it's only talks about exchanges look huge win and it potentially sets up Coinbase to win against the SEC. And, um, and then potentially you could see, you know, a lot of, projects go through an exchange for, you know, again, consumer protection is something that is definitely need, like, we need to work on that as an industry. I think no one can disagree on that because there's still a lot of scams and and there's still not perfect information. And so if that's going to require you to go to, which by the way, already happens. Like if you want to get your token listed on Coinbase or Binance, like any major exchange, you're going to have to produce a whole set of documents who are the investors Look, I mean, I mean, they're pretty- Not ripped. as much anymore. That was that was a case a long time uh, ago, but not as much anymore, I think. Some are different than others, but but sure. Um, and so, again, you talk about information disclosures and requirements and transparency. Well, a lot of the exchanges are doing that. Is it public for everyone to see? No. Should that be public? Maybe. Yes. Probably. Yes. 
Yes. And so disclosures are the lowest bar this industry needs to jump over. And I think everyone would do it, except they're afraid that any disclosures they make will be used against them in an enforcement action. Correct. Without that, everybody would be disclosing whatever because there's not much to hide. Which coincidentally allows for scammers to get away with stuff because people are afraid. And so in this state of fear, you allow the bad actors to to thrive, and I think Congress more and more understands that. I think that a lot of a lot of folks in the Hill are saying this is why we need clarity because as soon as you have clarity, then it allows the the SEC to be really just focused on going after the bad guys, not everyone out there, you know. And so I think if you have clear rules and you understand who's violating them, if you don't have any rules, then everyone's in this state of like guilty until proven innocent or unless you're and it's very frustrating and challenging actually for the industry guys anything else on the ripple case i know we you know want to touch on the 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 bills and some other stuff that's going on in regulatory land but anything else to say on ripple i before you decide that ripple has opened the door for everyone to do programmatic sales or everyone as you sort of said like can we sell on dexes like before you extrapolate that and and come up with a new way to distribute tokens by the way, the innovation in the space should keep on keeping on. But talk to a lawyer because don't just take what you hear on a podcast or you know read on Twitter or even if you read the decision yourself and think it necessarily blesses your behavior. Because as I said, there was a huge factual record. A lot of it probably wasn't necessarily discussed explicitly in the opinion. And so think about where you are as a you know, as a project yeah. or- And uh, not everyone has $200 million to like, you know, get a, get this type of uh, judgment. And by the way, no, we're not set up to do IPOs, initial programmatic offerings. So guys, you know, hold, hold on and like, just talk to a lawyer because there's there's a tried and true method that seems to be okay, but you still need to talk to a lawyer, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, so, agreed. No, they're always, yeah. So yeah, that's a great point, Rebecca. Uh, should we transition to talk a little bit about what's- uh, I mean, we we sort of alluded to and talked to a bit uh, the McHenry Thompson bill. I know we touched on it in the prior episode. Anything else, anything worth kind of updating on that front? Uh, I know you mentioned earlier that there's a round of edits coming next week or so or discussion. Yeah, sure. So um, this is sort of like, how does a bill become a law? And the first thing that happens, right, is that the bill is introduced. So um, I actually don't know if this bill has been introduced yet, right? Because all we have is a discussion draft. So we're still waiting for there to be actual text introduced. Um, Hopefully that will happen um, pretty soon. Uh, And it'll be a little bit different. Uh, You know, we know there've been a lot of changes made and uh, staff has been working extremely hard uh, to take feedback and and improve the bill. So I think the discussion drafted exactly what it meant to, right? It created a good discussion about the issues. And so next there will be text introduced. That text then has to go to the committees that have jurisdiction over the content of the bill. And this bill is in the jurisdiction of both the House Financial Services and Agriculture Committees because it deals with both the SEC and the CFTC, which are overseen by those two committees. Um, Actually quite a rare thing. Usually bills only fit into one or another committee. And this is a a joint effort um, by the the chairman of both of those committees, uh, uh, Chairman McHenry and Thompson. Um, A markup is basically the committees looking at the text and then deciding, do they want to vote up or down to report the bill to the full House of Representatives? And when they do that, they can also amend the text of the bill. So if they vote no, the bill dies in committee. If they vote yes, then the bill, along with whatever amendments or changes are done in the markup, right? That's why we call it a markup, is you're 
marking up the text of the bill, will then get moved to the House floor, and it gets a vote from the full House of Representatives. Now, if this bill gets reported out of the Financial Services and Agriculture Committees this month, it will likely go to the House floor this fall, uh, September or October, where it will either have its own hearing uh, on the House floor where they'll vote yes or no on the bill itself, um, or it could, in theory, get attached to some other bill, right? As we know, often um, bills just sort of get stuck into other totally unrelated bills and they get moved together as a package. If that happens, the bill would then move over to the Senate. And it's really hard at this moment to predict what would happen in the Senate. Um, In order for any bill to become a law, it has to get voted through both the House and also the Senate, and then it has to get signed by the president. Um, The issue we have here, of course, is that we have a House of Representatives controlled by Republicans. Um, This is primarily a Republican bill, right? Both of the chairs of those committees are Republicans. The Senate, on the other hand, is controlled by the Democrats. Democrats. Historically, the Democrats have been much less interested in doing legislation related to crypto. This is where the Ripple decision, I think, is quite impactful because it is sending a message to Democrats. The SEC does not have jurisdiction right now. If you want these markets regulated, then you're going to have to move some legislation. Um, but then we would uh, we would see sort of whether and how the bill would move in the Senate. And if it did, whether or not President Biden would be willing to sign it. So it's sort of a long road. We're also coming up next year. Um, on the presidential election. DC kind of shuts down when the election season gets started. So we don't have a whole lot of time to to try to get this moved. And if we don't do it this Congress, then we're coming back in 2025, potentially with a whole new set of players, different, you know, potentially different parties in control of either Chamber of Congress and maybe the White House as well. So so really hard to predict, um, but definitely something that the industry broadly is hoping that we can get done, provided that the bill is workable for the industry. So it's it's an exciting time for, for legislation in Congress. And a, a complementary piece of legislation that's coming up at the same time is the stablecoin bill, right? We saw that come out, um, a draft of it come out previously, then we saw it be re-released, then we saw uh, Ranking Member Waters put out a draft of her bill with some changes to it. But that's also coming through and likely will be put up for markup at the same time as the market structure bill, maybe a slightly on a different timeline. Jake may know more exactly than um, exactly the dates for that than I do. But I think they're supposed to be set for markup around the same time. So they'll come out together, most likely. For uh, everyone kind of hearing for this for the first time in the Stablecoin Act, is, is this touching both uh, like central bank digital currencies or the circle type of flavor like USDC? And, you know, if you could just give like a one minute summary on, on what it attempts to accomplish or, or in its current form, of course. In its current form, I mean, at least both from um, Chair McHenry and his version of it and ranking member Waters, it's really focused on fiat-backed centralized stablecoin issuers. That's the TLDR on it. Um, there's some so like a USDC, what- for instance. Yes, yep. exactly. Yeah. Is it positive, favorable to something like USDC, or how would you characterize it on the scale of pro or against like these type of instruments? It's creating a regulatory framework for them, which is very positive and extraordinarily low-hanging fruit to get done. I mean, it's already happened in uh, Europe with Mika. Um, The UK already has categorized stablecoins as financial instruments under their um, 
under their financial markets bill and are building out the regime for that now. So we just shouldn't be so far behind. Uh, and I do think there's an appetite to get it done. Yeah, I, I think it's quite positive. I think, um, you know, the devil is always in the details with things like this. But at this point, the remaining issues that are being discussed are very nuanced. It's things like what exactly is the path to issuance for a state chartered entity as opposed to a federally chartered entity? And that, that matters to some degree. But I think the industry is so hungry for a framework that it knows it can comply with. It's unlikely that we're going to see something in the stablecoin bill that we say, this is just unworkable. Um, um, and so I think I think that we all will be able to support that. The other thing is the stablecoin bill, just like the market structure bill, focuses on centralized custodial intermediaries, right? And Rebecca and I, so you know, aside from our, our full-time work, we're both board members at the DeFi Education Fund. And no matter what we do in life, DeFi is always near and dear to our hearts. And we've spent a lot of time making sure people understand now is not the moment to try to come up with a brand new regulatory regime for DeFi. We do not understand those markets well enough to come up with a way permanently in federal law in statute to regulate those types of markets and their participants. But centralized players, we understand that business really well, right? Like if you're an issuer of a stablecoin and you're holding a dollar in a bank account and the token you issue is a liability on your book, we know what we need to do to reduce risk in that type of, of environment. S same thing with a, with a trading platform like Coinbase or something like that, right? So that's what we want to do. We want to focus on what we understand and leave the rest for another day. And it's consistent with, with all the regulatory regimes that have been put out around the world so far, too. Yeah, I wanted to go there just touch on briefly. I know we're bumping up in the hour, but like Mika, I think there's a vote coming up where the EU is about to kind of vote on another round of like crypto regulations, uh, which of course is Mika, it's this framework designed to regulate issuance, trading, custody of crypto assets in the EU. Any developments there? Mika has been passed into law already. It, it, yes. Uh, but what is coming up are these like um, priorities from ESMA and um, which is the European Securities Market Authority and EBA, which is the European Banking Authority, each of which have to basically do implementing regulations. Um, so you can think of them as like the agencies that take what Congress did and put it into practice. So it's like rulemaking almost. Um, so that's coming up. Um, if there's a huge vote on something else crypto wise, it may be some of the anti-money laundering um, and then the Data Act, uh, which had these uh, little smart contract mentions in it also, uh, just went through the trilogs as well. So, I mean, I've talked about this a few times. There's a bunch of attendant pieces of regulation in the EU that may impact um, crypto and blockchain-based software um, separate and apart from Mika. And we just need to make sure those really stay consistent with uh, the tenor and the intention of Mika, which is, as Jake said, to really regulate these centralized intermediaries. But there are going to be these implementing regulations. So it's going to be a long road till we know exactly how Mika is going to be implemented, both on the securities and the banking side. It feels like Mika is a bit farther ahead than where the McHenry Thompson bill is. How much of, I don't know if you would agree with that, because it feels like Mika still, I mean, there's a, still a lot that needs to be clarified and kind of like drafted for Mika, right? It's a step in the right direction. feels like yeah. it's along, but it's not definitive in any way, shape, or form still, right? Uh, what I'd say is it at least gives you a roadmap as to how to run your business in the EU. And we do mm -hmm. not have that in the US. There's no roadmap right. at all. These, there are patchworks of opinions, as we talked about for most of this episode. So, yeah, which of course is influencing the appetite of investors 
and teams and where they want to be domiciled and operating in. Yeah. Um, how much of Mika and perhaps other regulate like pieces of regulate of of legislation in Dubai and Singapore and Hong Kong do you think are going to have an impact on the markup of the acts that we talked about in the U.S.? I don't think the way that they're written is going to have a huge impact. I do think those of us who were involved in um, some of the markups, they're not what they're called in Europe, but, you know, markups of Mika and who are helping other governments or talking to other governments around the globe definitely are trying to find some harmony um, in the U.S. too, where we can. But I do think, and this is, I think, a credit to Chair McHenry and Chair Thompson and their staff, they have taken a long time to try to understand exactly how the industry works. They have, per their discussion draft, had lots of discussions with people in the industry, um, lawyers, developers, and things like that. And so I don't think they are going to be swayed necessarily by what's going on around the globe. Interestingly, I will say I've been asked on the Hill, like, well, when you're engaging overseas, how much do people care about what the U.S. is doing? Not much. Like, you know, they're like, well, the, the SEC sued Coinbase, you know, d people don't care about that in Europe. I'm like, nope, nobody cares. <laughs> like, no, I've never heard about it. Um, so I think that's sort of an important takeaway. I agree with that. I think to the extent that it matters, it is it is just the fact that other countries are doing something that matters. Because really, the most important thing in Congress is the motivation to do something, right? Most bills don't fail in Congress because they get voted down. They fail because they just sort of sit and then expire at the end of the Congress, right? It's very easy. Uh, the most common thing ever is, is for members of Congress to feel like they just don't have to do anything. And so they won't. Getting a bill made into law is very hard. The way it's often described is there are 10,000 ways to kill a bill, but there's only one way that it actually makes it through and becomes law. And I, I don't want to overstate the likelihood that even with the amount of support that these bills have, um, that they will become law. This is really challenging. And the most important thing is to say to policymakers, this is really important. You must take action. If you don't, here are the consequences. And whether that's the consequences, these markets will not be regulated because the SEC is wrong when it says it already has jurisdiction or it's all of this activity will move overseas to other jurisdictions that are coming up with reasonable regulatory frameworks that the industry wants to take advantage of. Whatever it is, we've just got to get people moving. And that's, I think, why that matters most here in the U.S. Yeah. And I'll say one thing, um, which is I saw a great tweet after our last um, regulatory episode where somebody said, you know, we, Jake and I both said, like, please go call your representatives, tell them you care. And they went to an event of some, their rep who was running some sort of election event or something and really brought up a crypto related issue and engaged in a dialogue. Now is the time to call your representatives and tell them you care about this bill, um, at least like from the House side of things and that crypto is important to you uh, and why it matters. Um, I do not think you can call too many times. You should certainly mobilize other people um, to be calling too, because it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Political activation and energy uh, is, I think it will become a bigger topic in the next election cycle. But the question is, is it enough? Uh, of course, we're, we tend to think that crypto is the most important thing in, in our lives, but then and in crypto Twitter, but then you, you zoom out and you talk to people and they're either stuck in some narrative that is 10 years old or five years old, or just, you know, um, haven't given crypto a second thought. Um, and, and so it's really important to get, 
you know, politicians to be thinking about this. And it feels like younger generations really care about this topic. And so it's just a matter of, you know, them understanding that, I think. We've gone for an hour, guys. This has been a great discussion. Uh, Anything else worth talking about on the regulatory front, Uh, which I I know there's like a million things. India has been trying to ban crypto now for the 15th time or whatever. And, you know, it's not really news in my mind, but uh, I'm I'm curious if there's anything else that um, is top of mind for you guys that you think is worth uh, discussing. No, I just think, I mean, we've hit on a lot of it. I just, this is all moving across the globe everywhere. Um, And so I I actually think what's kind of amazing is notwithstanding how rough the end of last year was, we're, I don't know, nine months out and we're seeing a live crypto bill that's thoughtful and people are engaging on it. And I mean, I think that's extremely important and exciting um, and a real testament to what we've all built so far and what we can keep building in the future. I mean, the only thing I'll add is I I think we may look back at this period of time and think that June of 2023 was the bottom for the regulatory world in crypto, right? Right after the Coinbase and Binance cases, we were all feeling like the world was falling apart and we had no idea how we were going to get out of it. And I think we were talking, you know, on our last podcast about going on offense, right? And stop just sort of sitting around and getting attacked over and over again. And I think the last month has been extraordinarily good. And I, I think it's just going to get better from here on out. So I do think we are so back and I'm, I'm excited to see where we're at <laughs> there we uh, go. next month when we do this again. Well, for everyone listening, both Jake and Rebecca play an instrumental role in making crypto top of mind and educating regulators around the world. So give them a follow, show your love and appreciation. Uh, Rebecca, remind us again of the the website that you guys, the initiative that you have oh. to showcase the use cases, please. Cause that's super important. If you're an artist, if you're a pro, if you've used crypto and it's impacted your life positively, it, we need to show the world that this is not just the casino. And there are so many different useful use cases for regulators to understand why this, that, why this matters. So c- can you just remind us? Yeah. Of that we, yeah. Were you, what, each time you kept saying, is there anything else you want to say? Were you trying to yeah, set up for me? Like so? like- <laughs> I appreciate that. So um, we did, it's, it's about a month or six weeks old. Um, it's called the value prop polygon labs put it out, but it's open. It's transparent. Uh, it's a database that is showcasing all the great use cases um, for crypto and blockchain around the world. It's at thevaluprop.io. Uh, we launched it um, with a, a few over 300 um, applications listed and maybe 27 use cases. It's now been updated. It has 39 use cases and 430 applications. From the time when we launched it, we got so many applications to have um, their apps listed uh, that it's been overwhelmingly positive. And we've gotten some great feedback where uh, I hear from people who have their own regulatory meetings or even policymakers in other um, countries around the world to say, we use this all the time now to show people what blockchain can be good for. I've also had people say, I've used it to show my mom about blockchain. And I think that, I think this should be an educational tool in general and not just one for policymakers. I love it. We'll link it in the show notes. And mom, if you're listening, I always tell you it's free melatonin. Uh, and I've actually seen her pass out. Not not in the regulatory <laughs> pod. Other podcasts, I've seen her be listening and just passing out. Uh, and so anyway, so uh, go and check this out. So because it's super important for everyone. Uh, so anyways, appreciate that, Rebecca. Uh, Jake, Rebecca, always a treat having you guys on. Um, 
regulation is super important. Jake, I still think about, there was an episode that we recorded, God, it was like almost a year ago that you said, it was, I think almost a year ago, you said, you said the fall or even Q4 of last year is going to be super important where the agency is going to bring in a bunch of actions because they want to justify their budget and whatnot. And I think we've seen that. So I'm not calling Jake an oracle, but he is kind of an oracle when it comes to these things. So we are so back on the regulatory side of things, guys. We should celebrate this win cautiously. Go listen to the episode of why. Uh, but anyways, uh, go get your lawyer. And none of this is legal, financial, or any sort of advice. So anyways, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, Jake uh, and Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Awesome. Thank you.